Hello and welcome to another episode of The Clever Kids. This is a weekly podcast where three brothers take a look at a topic from popular culture that you may or may not care about. My name is Tyler. And you got Jeff here. And Brian is out. He saved by the baby. He didn't have to watch this movie from 1952 called Singing in the Rain. Directed by Stanley... Donan and Gene Kelly, written by Betty Comden and Adolph Green. Adolph? Wow. Don't see that a lot. Starring Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, Debbie Reynolds, and Gene Hagen. Hagen? Hagen. Hagen? Hagen. Um, Jeff, this was your... You chose musicals, and then you chose one of the oldest musicals in existence, uh, as far as film goes. Um, do you want to give us an introduction to the movie and explain your reasoning behind this choice? Yeah, of course I do. Um, for me specifically, the reason why I chose this film is because, uh, with each one of these seasons that we've been doing, I wanted to pick a film that I think aligns with the spirit of the season. Uh, right. Like I fucking hate horror films, but I went and actually picked an actual horror film. I could have picked a horror film that, um, wasn't as scary that I, I, um, could have actually enjoyed but um i wanted to pick something that i guess would scare me because that was the point and i succeeded and with this one musicals typically are these performance films um at least uh, and they're as opposed to other films where they don't perform is that what you're saying uh yeah that's exactly exactly what i'm saying and i'll get to what i mean i'll I'll, um clarify describe clarify what i mean further in that uh musicals and it, if, if this is i didn't realize that this was one of the first musicals i don't think that's accurate. it's not it's uh, not but yeah uh musicals of this time were so much more than what musicals today are because the actors had so had to have so much more um expectations put on them right it wasn't just about their vocals it was always about the spectacle that was happening on scene and so for me it's not just the catchy music here it's actually the dancing it's actually all of the things that are happening on set that are really captivating for this film um yeah, I mean, I personally, I, I, the reason why I chose musicals overall is because I wanted a lighthearted experience after horror. I thought it would be a fun transition to get into, uh, you know, this very, very central aspect of filmmaking if we're going to be doing seasons. Um, and while I did genuinely like The Little Shop of Horrors, uh, I, I, yeah, again, I've been trying to pick movies that were kind of in the spirit of the uh, of the topic. Um Personally, when I first watched this film, the thing that gravitated me towards it was the humor. Um, I really, really enjoyed uh, how funny and how much fun the characters had with this film. Um, Topic's a little bit bizarre and the set design's a little quirky, but um, really it was just all about the interaction between the actors themselves that made me want to watch it again. Um, The choreography, the movement that these actors were really capable of while performing was, was really impressive. Um, and, and like I said before, it's, it's really a spectacle. What did you think? Yeah. So this is one of those movies that, um, widely considered to be a classic of the genre and of film in general. Um, Gene Kelly pretty much exclusively started movies like this and was like a prolific choreographer and performer in these sorts of films. Um, 
I don't, there's definitely like a line for me with movies, right? And like 1970 is kind of that line. I, I, I definitely appreciate movies that are made before that because they sort of created everything that comes after it, right? Like they laid the groundwork and I can appreciate that, but I don't enjoy it. Like watching this movie sort of was, it felt like homework and more so than like entertainment. And it, that's exactly how it felt the first time I watched it as well. It just felt like I was supposed to do it rather than like I wanted to. Um, so that's not to say that I didn't, like, I don't like it or something. I do like this movie. I think it's, I think it is a very good example of what they were creating back then and what they were able to create. And like some of the camera work and, um, like almost like meta commentary that they had on like the filmmaking process is like way ahead of its time, I think. And the humor, like you said, caught me off guard this time. Like there were times that I genuinely was like laughing out loud at like some of the stuff that they were saying to each other and like about people and whatnot. Um, and I really appreciated that part of it. But, you know, again, I just, there is like a line where like a movie is just like, too old, too old for me to genuinely appreciate as a movie rather than like a homework assignment. Um, and that goes for like a lot of movies that I have in the past that I liked. Um, like earlier this year, I watched Psycho with my wife and I kind of only put it on because I knew that she had never seen it. Like, it wasn't like I wanted to watch it because I just like, I love this movie. It's like, I know exactly what's going to happen. And I've seen a hundred movies that do the twist that they do in that movie better. But because she had never seen this kind of staple that sort of like every, every horror movie is built on afterwards, you know, I, I felt like I had to put it on for her. But like, at that point, I was just sort of watching it to sort of prove how smart I was and how film literate I was and be like, oh yeah, you see that shot that's replicated in this movie, in this movie, in this movie, you know, like Alfred Hitchcock basically created that type of thing. Um, so that's sort of how I felt watching this movie. Um, as far as a musical goes, I, this movie almost, I, <laughs> it was weird in that, like, in a musical like Little Shop of Horrors, like they're singing to each other, but like they're acting as if it's just a conversation, right? Like they don't like, they don't like talk about how they were just singing to each other, right? But in this movie, they're singing to each other and then they reference the fact that they were just singing. Like they're like, it's just like their life exists in this universe where it's okay for people to just like sing their conversations or something. I found that to be very strange. Oh, by the way, I'm not going to hold back on spoilers for this movie. There's literally nothing to spoil, first of all. And second of all, this movie's from 1952. So if you haven't seen it by now, that's kind of on you. Um, you said that the plot was weird, or what, what did you say? You said like the storyline was kind of inconsequential. Is that what you're saying? No. I mean, what I said, the set design was, was uh, quirky. Um, and that the plot... Uh, 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 I don't honestly remember what I said. Um, I remember saying the set design was quirky. I don't remember what I said before that. But um, set design is cool, and like the costuming was like my favorite part of this movie. Like looking at all of these like 1950s outfits was so it's 1950s as 1920s. You know what I mean? So it's like these very interesting like heavy fabrics. Um, 
very like weird pants. Like uh, at one point he's wearing this like cream colored suit with like a blue tartan over like plaid over it. And then like this like deep V cable knit sweater. And then his pants, he has them tucked up under his socks that are knee high socks. So they're like, they're like high water. I don't, I was like obsessed with it. It was, I couldn't understand what was happening. Um, the director in the film is constantly wearing jodhpurs, which is like an Indian horse riding style pant, which is very like not a normal thing to be wearing in public. Uh, I just was like, what is happening? Um, that part I really appreciated. Um, I don't know. What did you, what did you think of like the costuming? Did, did any of it stand out to you? Was there an outfit that you were uh, amazed by? I mean, so the, the greatest thing about the costuming to me in this film is that, uh, Gene Kelly is shorter than his actress. Uh, uh, um, I don't remember if it's the one that plays it's, uh, her name's Sid. Um, Sid. Yeah, in one of his, in one of his, was it Sid Charisse? She's the one from the scene. They're probably the best shot scene in the film where he's talking about his Broadway melody song, and then Mm -hmm. it cuts to like the. It's like that was I genuinely like halfway through that song. First of all, the song's like five minutes long. (laughs) Halfway through it, I was like, "Wait, did a different movie just start?" Like, did the movie I was watching end and now I'm in a different Gene Kelly movie? Like, it was so strange. Like, a a dream sequence that just, like, got put into the, like, the third act of this film. Such a strange departure from the story. But, like, beautifully shot. That scene where they're dancing on the sunset stage. And there's, like, that that very light silk gown that she's wearing and it's blowing in the, the wind. I, I was blown away by that. Very good uh, so, choreography. But yeah, he is short compared he's, to her. And yeah, and so, but in the film, he's taller than her. And so the way they had to do it was practical effects. And so he's dancing on, <laughs> in, in specific angles and uh, wearing shoes that made him specifically taller, um, which is a, a feat in and of itself. Um, yeah. Interesting. So, I mean, I, I really enjoyed the the interaction between different pieces of fabric. Like I really like there's a sequence in there that I always that I always um, enjoy, which is in the singing or in the the good morning sequence. Um, there's a point where the three of them grab coats off the coat rack, and each one of them is dancing using the coat as a prop in a different form. One of them's doing like a samba, the other one's doing like a tango, the other one's doing um, I don't know more like a, a I don't know um, a waltz or something. Sure. Yeah. And they're each they're each using the coats as prop, and I really enjoyed their their interaction with props in this film. Um, yeah, let me ask you this: Did you have a favorite musical number, or was or was that your favorite musical number, the one you just described? No, I don't like the music in this film. I it's it I didn't yeah there wasn't a all of them kind of were the same to me. I guess to be honest, my favorite part of the movie was the one where. Uh, Donald O'Connor and Gene Kelly are going through like their history together and he's like telling this story of like how he lived in like high class whatever but he they were really grew up poor as like charlatans basically or uh, you know just like traveling performers and they do like this weird fiddle dance <laughs> that were like jumping on top of each other and playing each other's fiddles and stuff like that and like obviously they're not actually playing those fiddles it's all a performance but it the dancing of, of it and the choreography of it was 
very good and i really appreciated all of that um as far as like genuine musical numbers uh yeah there wasn't one that truly stood out again i'd seen this movie so none of it was like the first yeah new like i already knew all the the songs and also this is like there's such staples of the genre you know what i mean like I know these songs. Like I've seen this on stage, this movie. I've seen like a play version or a musical, you know, oh. stage play version of this. Um, so I'm very aware of these songs. So nothing really stood out. I mean, I guess the hack answer is singing in the rain is like very interesting choreography, the stepping on and off the curb as he's splashing around the puddles. The concept of rain in LA is insane. <laughs> I was like, wow, if there's ever been more proof of global warming than this movie i i've never seen it you know the idea that it rained three times in the week or whatever that this movie takes place right. <laughs> in los angeles is insane um but yeah i am um, yeah i don't know I, I do think that 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 choreography of that dance sequence of gene kelly just sort of splashing around like a maniac uh is fun but i don't know none of the songs really stood out to me what about you what's your favorite from this one my favorite sequence and it's more than just the singing but it's um the the moses supposes song in which Mm. um gene kelly is going through speech speech practice speech therapy in order to uh make the transition from a non-vocal actor to a vocal actor um, because hollywood's making that transition and his best friend uh, Donald O'Connor interrupts him as his practice and takes over the entire thing to go have fun. And um, I'm going to transition this to the kind of spirit of, of the question I want to ask, which is my personal favorite aspect of this film by far um, is the friendship between Donald O'Connor and Gene Kelly. Um, I love mm-hmm. the way that Donald O'Connor interacts with Gene Kelly throughout this film. Um, his energy that he brings to every single scene, in my opinion, kind of steals the show for for the scenes that he shares with with O'Connor or with um, with Gene Kelly. Obviously, Gene Kelly is the better dancer, and there's a lot of fun facts, uh, if you can call them fun, about his uh, um, obsession with perfection. Uh, wow, it doesn't which, sound fun right off the bat. No, <laughs> no, but. Um, Donald O'Connor's interaction with Gene Kelly in this film is so much fun for me, um, which is why I pose to you the question uh, of, well, let me talk about that sequence for a second, because in that sequence, you get so much verticality between them dancing on tabletops and then transitioning throughout different elevations throughout that film. Like they're sitting on like a four foot desk, two grown men tap dancing next to each other which mm-hmm. I thought was was insane. And then they jump between chairs and then throughout the entire dance studio, uh, they're constantly interacting with the environment and each other. Uh, I was really blown away and it was just super fun of a concept. Like watching it again, watching closely Donald O'Connor's acting as he's interacting with like the speech therapist and giving his best friend shit for having to go through this thing um, was hysterical to me. Um, which is why I posed to you the question if, if you'd like to move on. Uh, to what is the best friendship that you've seen on screen? Yeah. Um, that's a really great question. Um, I think that this, I'll echo you on that. I do think that the, uh, this movie has a very interesting portrayal of friendship. Um, those two, the way that they play off of each other, the way that they 
um, sort of work together and exist together in the space. Um, and the way that they just, they, there's a chemistry to them. They, they, they seem to enjoy each other's company, even for like this old, older movie, they get that across on the screen, you know, um, in a way that I, I, I guess I, I haven't really seen a lot of movies that kind of just like portray friendship in like this very genuine way where they're like bouncing ideas off of each other. And like, one's like, Hey, like, what are you doing later? Like, let's go actually hang out. You know, in movies, it's more just to be like, look, these guys are friends. And then you move on to the plot. This one, like their friendship is sort of core to the story. Um, so I don't know. Do you have any examples right off the bat? I got to I got to think about this a little bit more. So I definitely have a couple that that come to mind. I mean, obviously, when you think of um, uh, famous duos, you get a lot of different characters. And I think there's a couple that we want to talk about because I don't think that they are the best. But I think that they're ones that people will um, immediately think of. Um, so when you think of dynamic du duos, a lot of people think of, you know, Han and Chewie. Or Frodo and Sam. Yeah, uh, but okay, so Frodo and Sam is a good one, but like we had talked about this right before we started recording, where that friendship is almost entirely one sided. Mm -hmm. Frodo almost throughout the whole movie is like, get the fuck out of here, man. And Sam's like, no, I'm not leaving. I'm with you till the end of the line, pal. Um, you know, it just seems like Frodo is almost like bothered by Sam's presence throughout, like, and in the books. I will say their friendship is way more fleshed out. And like, I, I'm not talking shit about the Peter Jackson movies. I love them. And like, Sam's probably my favorite character in those movies because he just is like such a like genuine and true person that it's yeah. hard to not like him. Um, but yeah, that, that friendship is almost entirely one-sided. Um, I, I, uh, what, what I do like about the aspect of Frodo and Sam's friendship, I will say this is that, if Frodo's burden was to carry the ring, then Sam's burden was to stay, stay positive. Yeah, stay positive. Because Frodo needed I that. I can't carry it for you, but I can carry you. I mean, that, that yeah. kind of epitomizes everything that he's doing. Through. I mean, he sacrifices so much just to just to even be there along his side. I mean, he, he risks drowning, literally is willing to drown himself just to try to get on the same boat as Frodo in the first film. Oh, yeah. Um, That's my favorite scene in pro possibly any movie ever is... Frodo yelling to Sam, go back, Sam, I have to go alone. I'm going alone. And he's like, of course, of course you are. And I'm coming with you. <laughs> I love that line. And I love the way that he says it as he's just like trudging into the water, like carrying all of his backpack filled yeah. with pots and pans. And Pure shit. determination. Yeah. He's just like, no, I'm not like you and I are doing this together. You can do it alone, but I'm, I'm with you on, on while you're alone, you yep. know? And I think about it, specifically i i try to apply that thought to like whatever my wife and i are like in an argument and she's like really mad at me and i'm like look you got to go figure this out alone but like i'm still like on your team you know what i mean like even if we're fighting whatever like i'm still on your team you know yeah. like you're not ever truly alone and yeah i, I definitely think that i really like the portrayal of sam <laughs> as yep. a friend yep. but i don't know if their friendship really works yeah um, I okay so i just thought of a couple that i do think probably work Sure. Okay, Bill and Ted. Yep. Go ahead. They they're friends. Yes. Like all the way through, right? Mm -hmm. They're and they're like not using each other. They're just working together, and, and they genuinely enjoy each other's company. Um, they play off of each other really well. Alex Winter and Keanu Reeves are a very good pair. 
I've not se seen the newest one, but like those first two are, are great. Um, another one that is a really great friendship that I think about actually often is Timon and Pumbaa. Okay. Um, which sort of almost has like a similar vibe to like what's going on in this movie, really, because they're like song and dance and like they're working together, but like, um, I don't know. It's just like a very fun portrayal of friendship, especially with like the they they do like the very classic like fat dumb one and skinny smart one or whatever, sure. which is a very classic uh, hallmark of stage and screen. Um, I don't know. Uh, so I'm trying to pull up a list here. Do you so got let me, any other let me, good let me ones? push back on Bill and Ted. So I I I love that idea. I knew that was going to come up, um, and I tried to figure out why I didn't want to choose them. And I think the reason why is in order for it for me to be considered the best friendship in film, I, they need to really be tested. And Bill and Ted are always represented as a single unit. They are constantly aligned in everything that they do. There's no friction in their friendship. It's not a realistic portrayal of how two individuals would see each other. They are well, basically what's the friction in this movie in Singing in the Rain? These guys are best friends to to the end and they never have a problem. Sure. Which is why I wanted to use this film as a framework for what is the best film friendship. Cause I wouldn't say that Donald O'Connor and Gene Kelly are the best film friendship. They weren't necessarily mm. my put forward, but I loved their friendship in this film in the same way that I love Bill and Ted's friendship in the Bill and Ted films. But I want to know who, who the actual, who would I classify as best friends? Like I'll throw you a curveball of someone who I think should be on this list. Not necessarily my choice, but someone I think we should talk about is Cameron from Ferris Bueller. Cameron and Ferris Bueller are kind of in that almost one-sided relationship. No, they're not friends. <laughs> they're not friends. That movie, I I don't like that movie very much. And I really think that Ferris Bueller is like a sociopath and sort of a monster. And Cameron is just being used for his wealth, basically. And like Ferris like puts it to... Cameron that like he's doing all of these things for Cameron but I really think that Ferris is like no nah, I'm just bored and I need someone else around me so that I'm less bored like I think he's a monster and he's using Cameron and but like there, doesn't actually respect him in any way but there is friction in that friendship though I'm not and again I'm not saying that Cameron is but I want to use they're not Cameron. friends I, I think they <laughs> the are friction is that Cameron is realizing that Ferris is not is using him and Ferris is convinced is gaslighting him and convincing him that he's not using him. It's and, bullshit. It's, and while um, Ferris could have done a much better way of doing it, of, of accomplishing his task, his task is the same of I'm trying to bring you out of your shell. If I leave you alone, you're going to end up this repressed person who's going to become this, this perfect person that your father wants you to be. And while he doesn't do it the right way, he should have done it differently. He's representing a teenager who doesn't know how to do it the right way. So he does it the only way that he knows how forcibly. He forces Cameron out of his shell and forces his father. It forces Cameron to confront his father, which Cameron comes at odds with at the end of that film. While I don't think that they're the best friends in films, I think that the dynamic that they have and the growth that those two characters have as a result of their interactions with each other is an important dynamic of that film. No. <laughs> I don't like that okay. movie and I hate the character of Ferris okay. Bueller. Okay. And how I've about said it now on record, but yeah, Good to I really know. don't like it. How about another one? Spock and Kirk from the from the James Abrams films. Clear tension. They're clearly James not aligned. JJ. JJ Abrams. But I do like Jay. I do like that you're on a first name basis with him. Is his first name James? Is the first I don't think so. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. Um, Spock and uh, Kirk from the JJ Abrams. Uh, his hey, his first name? Jeffrey. 
there's so many Jeffs in this world. Every like job that I interact with has at least one or two Jeffs. I'll be on just random calls like a couple times a week, and each one's like, I gotta go sync up with Jeff, and I'll be like, uh, what do we have to sync up? About? Like, no, no, my Jeff, and it's like, holy shit, Jeff's a popular name. Yeah, and um, and uh, I think that uh, Taika Waititi needs to be aware of that. There's a lot of Jeffs out there. You need to stop putting shit on my name. Um, Spock okay. and Kirk, J.J. Abrams. There's clear friction that Spock and Kirk are, are almost rarely aligned in this film, and yet they continue to support each other, which is an interesting dynamic for for how an actual friendship would work, where I'm not always on the same side as, as my friends. I don't always believe the same things that they do or, or would take the same actions that they take. But at the same time, Spock is also in this kind of professional role where he has to take the orders of, of Kirk, even though he doesn't necessarily agree with them. Um, yeah, so I honestly feel like Kirk and Spock are actually just like work friends. They're not best friends. It just so happens that they work where they live. So they have to be closer than they typically would be. But like, in reality, I don't think that Spock or Kirk really like each other as much as they just like have to work together and eventually develop a mutual respect. It's sort of like, I don't know if you've ever worked in an office environment with someone that you're like, I would never hang out with this person outside of work, but like we get along and can have small talk and like genuine conversations about life and stuff inside the office. That's Kirk and Spock. What, like, what are you talking I like about? You what movies that's did what, you watch? I mean, the, the Wrath saying, of Khan, literally, you get him in a blood-curdling yeah, but rage. Do you believe it? Yes. No. Are you know. telling me that you would go into that same level of rage if some random person killed your coworker friend? You would just be Khan! and chase him through the streets of San Francisco jumping off of starships? I don't think so. I want to be clear. I'm one second away from that level of rage just at just at base <laughs> level. So it wouldn't take very much for me to go into that that flown off a handle, right? Like that's just like my pretty much resting heart rate is like that place that he gets to so it, it wouldn't like if he took a cookie off my desk i would chase a man through san francisco <laughs> you kidding me <laughs> if someone moves my lunch from a in a different shelf to make room for their lunch on the fridge and i have to look for it for a second and think for a second that someone stole my lunch i have to like go for a walk to calm down <laughs> someone doesn't return my pen after oh boy, were- I, ooh, <laughs> God forbid someone ever does that. I genuinely, if someone asks for a pen, I'm like, I don't have any when they can fully see <laughs> that I have a cup full of pens on my desk because I will not let myself get to <laughs> so that carefully, level of anger. A carefully, carefully curated selection of pens and you can have none. Um, um, I have exactly three black, three blue, and three red, and I can't have any less than that or I'll have a full-blown <laughs> panic attack. So, uh, no, you can't actually. <laughs> um... But you know what? We do have an office supplies closet six steps away from our desk. So why don't you just walk your fat ass over and get your own pen? God damn it. Why are you asking me for a pen? See, this is the level of anger I'm constantly at. There's a very low threshold that people should not be crossing when I'm in the office. Okay. I've got one other character that I would put up as similar to Sam in his determination of his friend, but isn't necessarily reciprocated that I think is also, we've talked about it on pod before. Doc Holliday. Doc Doc (laughs) Holliday and Wyatt Earp in Tombstone. I'm your Huckleberry. Um, Man, it's been a while since I've seen that movie. Uh, Yeah, I think that, I don't know, man. I don't actually, 
I don't know if I can agree. I uh, again, like, I don't. Are they friends or are they just sort of like, like coworkers by happenstance? <laughs> like they just live in the same town and have a mutual admiration slash respect for each other. Isn't that more the case? I don't know. They're probably I mean, friends. It, it's been a while these, since I've seen that movie, so I can't really opine. You're wild with your interpretations because in both the J.J. Abrams films. And in Tombstone, <laughs> the characters firmly establish that they're best friends. I know. I just don't, I don't have any friends. So I, like, my interpretation of friendship is very strange. The, the guy who plays Spock from the original TV show, his name Leonard is Leonard Nimoy. Leonard Nimoy literally talks about how fantastic of a friendship and how Sp- Kirk was his best friend of all time ever. Their in soulmates. the shows, like in the original series, Spock and Kirk seem to be more like seem to have more of a friendship right like i feel like uh zachary quinto does a good job of portraying spock and i think that kirk does a good job of portraying kirk but i think that both of them just have this surface level annoyance with each other throughout the whole film series trilogy that they're in that it honestly makes it feel like they they're just tolerating each other at any given point um so I don't know. I I just sometimes I'm like, when I watch those movies, I like those movies, but I'm like, are they friends? I don't. It doesn't feel like it. The same way that like I like like Leonard Nimoy's like emotional detachment is good in the original series, but I think that he also does a very good job of showing that he has an affection for the characters. Whereas I think Zachary Quinto's Spock is almost so emotionally detached. That I'm like, he doesn't seem to really like anybody. <laughs> so I don't know. I don't not that's not a that's not a uh, detraction on his character. I just think that it's a different characterization than the original series, and they were kind of doing their own thing, and I respect that in its own way. But yeah. Anyway, <laughs> um, I do have a couple more that I just pulled up a list, and there's a couple that I do agree with. Um, Speaking of like testing the relationship, Seth and Evan from Superbad, um, I think it's a very good interpretation of a high school friendship. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that they really nail that pres- that representation. Um, I have uh, Maverick and Goose and Top Gun. I think I already said that out loud, but very good interpretation. Um, there's not really a test in it, but I think that they kind of fill the same role that I mean, the test is that one of the characters dies, but um, they kind of feel this Don McDonald, whatever his name is, John O'Connor and Gene Kelly role here where they're just kind of like friends that like bounce ideas off of each other and are like just in it to win it with each other at all times and have like a sort of a full trust and respect for each other, which I appreciate. Um, Yeah, I don't know. I think we can move on. I think that we've hit some of the better ones. I mean... Is there one? Oh, I did have a couple from comic books that I did write down that I sure. wanted to um, talk about here. Let me put my list. Um, so the the one that stands out to me the most is Blue Beetle and Booster Gold. Um, I think they're the only two characters in comics that have separate titles where they're both the main characters and then also have a main title where it's just a mixture of their names, Blue and Gold. Um they uh, are a like a true comic book friendship. I only really know of them through each other, really. You know, they're both sort of like 
B-level DC heroes, but together they're like an A-list team, which I think is very fun. Also very comedic together, and I really like that. Um, another one from comics that I wrote down is Luke Cage and Iron Fist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I mean, that one goes... I mean, you. I don't have to explain that one to you, Jeff, but... Yeah, um, I'm wearing an Iron Fist beanie as we speak, so yeah. Yeah, like... Heroes for Hire has been around for decades at this point as a comic book series that is Luke Cage. and Well, it was just like an anthology thing where it was like different characters, but then they made this team up of Luke Cage and Iron Fist and people liked it so much that that just became the title of their their combination comic book, which is Heroes for Hire. And now they're directly associated with that. Skinny, skinny, lighthearted character. And and yeah, big, big, angry character. (laughs) Um. It's a really good representation of a friendship, um, and it's an interracial friendship, which was kind of uh, a big deal at the time um, that that comic book started. Uh, I still, you know, uh, David um, Walker's, David F. Walker's uh, series uh, run on that is one of your favorite comics of all time, I think. I actually got you, when he was my, I had a class with taught by David F. Walker, and I got him to sign one of the first five issues of that for you. Um, another one that is a big one comes from DC and that's Green Lantern and Green Arrow. They've been shown to be best friends uh, multiple times. And then another big one that I think more fits that Spock and Kirk category where I'm not even really sure that they are friends uh, would be Superman and Batman. Batman mm-hmm. is such a broken person um you know they always try to write them as best friends but i just don't think that batman can have friends personally um because i think he's just too detached um in that same way but i do think that they have a mutual respect for each other which i think is portrayed relatively well did you have any from comics that you wanted to talk about or tv or anything else that you want i mean the, the only one that i think is more worthy of a discussion um really is from the mcu which is like that kind of I mean, really, I just want to talk about the film Civil War because <laughs> uh, I love that movie. I love that climax of that film so much. Um, for the uninitiated, the concept of Civil War is Captain America basically chooses his old best friend, Bucky, who is this brainwashed assassin, over his new best friend, Iron Man. Uh, and Iron Man doesn't like it so much, so he tries to kill But I both. think that this is another example of Captain America is like, we are just like work friends, bro. Like, I don't even really like you. Like, we are constantly arguing with each other. And Iron Man's like such a broken person that he misunderstood that as a friendship and was angry. Like, I mean, this movie could be cut as like a single white female riff. You know what I mean? Where like, he's mad that he feels like he's being replaced. And Captain America's like, yo, dog, like, you need to chill. We were never really that close. We kind of just hang out in the office. You know? I mean, I, I, I get that interpretation. I mean, really, for me, the, 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 mi- the mix between this film is that one character is trying to murder and the other one's not. And so Cap's like, I can't let you murder people. <laughs> uh, and, and Iron Man's just so blinded by, so consumed by vengeance that he's just like, if Iron Man had been like, hey, I don't like this, Captain America would be like, yeah, let's hear you out. But like the fact that Iron Man came in guns blazing. Captain I'm going to be honest, down. Captain America is there when Black Widow's out there shooting people. Captain America's throwing that shield at normal men in the face. Like, he's oh, yeah, he's, no, you know, he's not afraid sure. to murder people. But, like, <laughs> but when one friend's trying to murder, murder the other. This person exactly. has clearly murdered multiple people, including your own parents. Right. Because Bucky, I mean, he was my buddy a hundred years ago. Exactly. But he also stopped Bucky from murdering other people. So it's not like he's just against his friends murdering his friends. Um, 
Yeah, I don't know. Uh, but the reason why I bring that up is because um, that climax of that film is might be my favorite climax of any MCU film, where um, Iron Man just turns to him and just goes, you were my friend. Or he goes, or Captain America says, he was my friend. He and, is, uh, I can't let you do this, he's my friend. And he says, so was I. So was I. Yeah. Um, yeah. I uh, I don't know. I still don't think, like, in the comics, Captain America and Iron Man have a mutual respect for each other, but they never have seen like friends. each other. Correct. Yeah, they're not friends. Like, I think they just, like, respect each other. I was just, um, my, my roommate, just as a very, very quick sidebar, just caught up for some reason, uh, read the Wikipedia on Hank Pym, and was blown away by what he'd read. And I was like, yeah, the Avengers comics, up until the point that Robert Downey Jr. took over Iron Man, was just a bunch of dick-swinging egotists that were trying to take control of the Avengers. Like everyone is just like, I invented this and I'm the smartest person because of this and I deserved it. And it's like, holy shit, a lot of egos on that team. Well, there's also like this thing. So this is way off topic, but uh, let's go down this road quickly. Um, Cause I think it kind of leads into the next topic. Marvel D- DC has this commentary that people always make fun of where they're like, everybody is God level. Like there's nobody who can beat anybody. It's like all these gods and then Batman. You know what I mean? Like, there's no one that's just, like, a normal, like, Captain America level, Iron Man, or uh, Iron Fist level, like, kind of, like, pretty powerful, but not the most powerful person in the world. I mean, th- there are, but they're not relevant. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Everybody is Superman or, like, God tier. Um, and uh, it, that's true. That's a very accurate criticism. And I, yep. I, it's one of the reasons that I sort of struggle with a lot of DC comics. Um, but Marvel this criticism that I just like, I never really understand is that everybody in Marvel is the smartest person that's ever existed. Like Spider-Man's hella smart. Iron Man's hella smart. Hank Pym's hella smart. Mr. Fantastic's hella smart. Dr. Doom's hella smart. Like everybody is the smartest man alive. Um, to the point that they have a group of characters called the Illuminati, which is just the most, like in the movie, they were just like, it was just like a different version of the Avengers. In the comics, it's the smartest Avengers and there's like 20 of them. <laughs> and they're all on a different team that's a secret team. And one of those members happens to be T'Challa, the Black Panther, um, who is so smart that he almost single-handedly invented every single piece of technology in Wakanda. That's what they do. That's the version of T'Challa that exists in the comics. He's the scientist that invented everything in, in Wakanda. And it's, it's yeah, every character is a genius and it's ridiculous. Yep. Um, so anyway, at any rate, let's uh, move on to our next topic, I think, right? Sure. We went and saw Black Panther 2, Wakanda Forever. Um, this movie was directed by Ryan Coogler, who directed the original Black Panther film, um, written by Ryan Coogler and Joe Robert Cole, starring Letitia Wright, Lupita Nyong'o, Denai Guerrera, Winston Duke, Angela Bassett, Tenoch Huerta as the new character Namor, Martin Freeman, Dominique Thorne as Riri Williams, Florence Kasumba, and Michaela Cole. Um... This movie currently is sitting at an 84 uh, from critics on Rotten Tomatoes with a 95% audience score. Um, I'm not going to give the synopsis because I think we all get it, but um, we'll do a quick non-spoiler section here and then get into full spoilers. Jeff, how did you feel about this movie? Uh, 
I like this movie a lot. Um, honestly, it's solid eight to nine out of ten. Um, I, I I really enjoyed this film. I, I uh, non spoiler review. Let's see. Um, I the thing that I liked about this film the most is uh, their focus on loss. Obviously, it's not a spoiler to say that the front runner of the previous film. Uh, has passed since that film has come out and they needed to do something about his character's loss in this film. And so it's all about the characters who remain grieving. And I think that the story that they chose to tell would have been a lot harder to tell where that character's still alive. Not, not, um, I, I think that it was an interesting, um, direction for them to take once the film creators had to deal with that setback. And I enjoyed what they created um what about you my initial thoughts here are that this movie was very long yep and i feel like it was so jam-packed with characters that even like despite its long runtime no one got served fully i would say that this movie for me sits at like a six and a half seven out of ten like i i think that there were very strong moments but I think that there was a bit of a mess. It kind of is more along the lines of like Avengers Age of Ultron for me than like Infinity War or Civil War. Another movie that was jam another set of movies that were jam-packed with characters that I felt everybody got enough service to kind of have an arc to an extent, right? Where they needed to, at least. Um, I think that this movie felt like set up the whole time. It didn't really feel like an installment that was deserved of its own. It was like setting up the next major Black Panther movie or the next major Disney Plus television show. Hmm. Um, and yeah, I think I, overall I was slightly disappointed, even though I was going in with sort of you know moderate expectations. Um, Interesting, because I didn't get that. I mean, I've I've definitely felt that way. I've given that same kind of review for a couple of Marvel properties, specifically like Doctor Strange, about how I felt like not enough changed in this uh, world due to the events of this film that it justified the production of this film. I did not feel that way about this movie. I liked the the decisions that they made. I do agree it was long, but um, I, I think that that length was an intentional choice, and I, I honestly... Um, enjoyed some of the slower moments of this film, and I want to talk about it more once we once we get off the whole non-spoiler. Uh, well, I think we can just move straight into full spoilers for this. So let's just because yeah, I don't I don't have a lot more to say in the non-spoiler section because there is sort of a lot to spoil here, and I don't really if like if you haven't seen the movie, I don't want to ruin it for you. So if you haven't seen it, stop listening now. Come back to it later. Um, full spoilers ahead for Black Panther, Wakanda Forever, and also any Marvel movie slash DC movie slash any movie you've ever heard of, seen, or wanted to see. Um, Riri Williams could have not been in this movie and the plot would have not changed. Right? Mm -hmm. Like, because the idea that, that the CIA developed a vibranium finding machine didn't need Riri Williams to be a part of it. And she she doesn't really serve a purpose throughout. And, like, the character feels underdeveloped. Um, 
that's an example of a character that got un- underserved by the plot, by like even t- like you know despite the runtime. Denai Guerrero's uh, Dora Milaje character, whose name I'm, I'm is escaping is that, me. Is right? that Nika? Uh, no, it's Okoye, right? Okoye, she's yep. the main uh, Dora Milaje. Her getting stripped of her title and then becoming a Midnight Angel, which is a character from the comics, um, that she that her character does not become, um, felt very strange and I, I sort of didn't really fully understand it um Angela Bassett is getting a lot of like Oscar not like nomination talk but like in all honesty she's in this movie for like five minutes and then they killed her which I was like we're already dealing with a major character death in this movie why would we kill another major character like I, it just seemed like it was a holdover from an initial pass on the script that like that initial Black Panther Wakanda Forever script had her dying in it, and then T'Challa died, and then they were or Chadwick Boseman died, and they were like, "Well, we're definitely going to keep the Queen dying because we don't need to keep Angela Bassett around." But I'm like, "Geez, like a lot of death in this movie that just yeah. sort of I I don't know I didn't I was like I mean I don't, I don't I, know." It seems like, and I know you're going to push back on this, but it seems like the thing that, that you didn't grasp that I actually appreciated for this film is that this film felt like a war film. This this movie tried to depict a war between two highly powerful nations. There's going to be losses, specifically significant losses on the leadership side. Right? I don't I think mean, it showed enough of, I, I don't think that this is this comes across as a war film to me. But I mean, if, if that's your read, then... That, yeah, was, that was that was 100 my read right there was it was uh, a a point of conflict between two nations with then microaggressions on both sides until all out conflict that's sure it only lasted a week because Marvel's Marvel's not going to lay out concepts over months or years uh, but I still felt that it was impactful I, th- I thought that the motivations of the characters they they set out some clear motivations for the characters well I don't love the aspect that Namor's prime motivation was to get Wakanda into an alliance. If you accept that that is his prime motivation, then his actions in the film make sense. Sure. What about this? Martin Freeman and uh, Dave Fontaine being being like a... Julia Dreyfus. Yeah, Julia Louis-Dreyfus being a, like, at one time married, weird... I don't. I don't know why that exists in the movie. Did they? Um, yeah, you didn't. You didn't catch that I that he was talking. That. that they talked about being exes. No. She's like, well, I want to apologize for a couple things from when we were married. And I was like, what? That okay. Oh, glossed right over that. Oh yeah. So they were they were married at one point. Okay, that's fine. I can accept that. But then they just don't really do anything with those characters. Yeah. They could have not been in the movie, and the plot would have not remained unchanged. It was a weird. It just choice. is. It, it's set up for uh, the Thunderbolts movie or like the next Black Panther movie or whatever. Um, I I just felt I, I don't know, man. I just felt like they'd set up a lot of stuff and didn't pay enough of it off. And then the parts that they did pay off, I just sort of was like, okay. I, I don't know. I, I feel like I'm coming down really negative. I like this movie enough. I don't regret going and seeing it by any chance, by any means. I honestly might be just starting to get burnt out on a lot of this Marvel stuff. And I think it might be that they kept their production up through the pandemic and are delivering an inferior product because they had to keep production rolling. And so half their movies look like they're filmed in a product in a closet and the other half 
are just sort of feel rushed, I guess. Um, like you can tell that this movie has seams that are stitched together from before Chadwick Boseman died and after Chadwick Boseman died. Like they kept stuff around that they were going to introduce either way. And then there's parts that had to be changed because he died. Right. And I think honestly, the parts that appear to me to be the parts that were changed after he passed are the stronger parts of the movie, which is interesting. Like, um, Letitia Wright coming into her own or Shuri coming into her own and having to grow up and like have this queenhood and uh, responsibility thrust upon her, even though that was never her intention or what she wanted for herself. I think that that was a very interesting story to tell, right? I think her learning her diplomacy despite or like learning to forgive the same way that T'Challa does um, and like her storyline sort of mirroring his civil war and his first movie appearances um, storyline. I think that worked for me. I think the parts that didn't work for me were the rest of the characters from the original movie, their development being sort of hamstrung. And then the introduction of Riri Williams, just because I don't know, did they feel like they had to introduce her in an all black movie or something before they introduce her in her own Disney plus series? Because I feel like she could have fit better in a different movie or in a different space than in this one. I didn't, it, I just don't really feel like, I don't know, it sort of felt like they forced Ryan Coogler's hand to introduce this character, and I just didn't, I don't know. Which, I would have liked to I mean, see what he would have done separate like, from that. I I get that. Um, it doesn't, and I, and I understand that is a legitimate complaint. For me, it doesn't bother me if it was forced. Um, right, I mean, it's it's a superhero franchise. They have to keep introducing new characters to have new content to keep the franchise alive. So, of course, there's going to be times when characters are going to be needed to put into a plot that otherwise wouldn't necessarily need to be there, right? Like, does Spider-Man need to show up in Civil War to steal Cap's shield and only be there for 30 seconds? No. Did you even need Spider-Man in that film at all? Did he do anything in that film to slow Cap down or change the plot of that? No. But it introduced Spider-Man. He wasn't, like, a major character throughout the film. He shows up for 10 minutes and then he's back out. And... It just serves as an introduction. That's not what they did with Riri Williams. If that's what they did with her, I probably would have had less of an issue with it. But like they made her have like a core component to the film and like Sure. I don't know. I just I sort of was like, I don't get what this character's doing here. It you know? Didn't, it didn't bother me. I didn't I didn't feel that same way. I, I enjoyed seeing her fly alongside everyone else i enjoyed the 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 chase scene through san francisco with okoya and shuri boston um oh through boston um of each of them running away from each other like individually running from each other um and then the fight like i i enjoyed the components of the film that she introduced the like the only real gripe that i had with the film was um i loved namor's interpretation there were specific things that he chose to do that seemed not perfectly aligned. But again, that goes back to my having to accept that his prime motivation is not to fight a war, right? He shows up, he drowns the queen um, and uh, does nothing. He takes Wakanda. He's broken past their defenses. He owns that fucking city and turns around and goes, all right, we're leaving. Uh, We'll come back in a week. Do this again. Uh, And it's like, I didn't really understand that to be honest, which I don't, 
the only way to accept that choice is to accept the concept that his motivation was to find peace with Wakanda and get them on his side so that the two of them can wage war against the surface world. That is that is what he states his prime motivation is. And if you accept that that's what it is and he reinstates that like three different times throughout the film, fine. I don't like it, but okay. Um, that being said, let's, uh, let's talk about some of the characters. You talked about how you enjoyed... Um, the, the main character, the, the new Black Panther, Shuri's development throughout the film. I don't know. Okay, so I don't really like Letitia Wright as an actress, if I'm honest. I don't I don't know. She just doesn't... She's not really... She doesn't really grab me in any way. Um, I'm fine with her being the Black Panther, but I actually thought that they were going to set it up for Nakia to be... Uh, Lupita Nyong'o's character to be the Black Panther, and I think I would have appreciated that more. I like her as an actress. I think that um, her physicality in the in, in the movie could have really lent itself to the black panther um i think i would have liked that more but you know that's just not what they did which fine that's you know not for me to decide um i thought that tena Huerta is did a really good job of portraying namor's mercuriality right and that's not a word i don't think i just made it up but namor in the comics is he's just like he's a reactionary character he's constantly um kind of flying off the handle they i think that in the comics like the the reason that they give for why he's like that is that he is of two worlds he has like two different human like dnas right he's got like atlantean dna and human dna like he's not his origin story is not like it is in this movie right but anyway i think that they show like that quick to anger version of namor who's also very ruthless that was interesting. I can't believe they stuck with the wings on the ankles thing and made it kind of interesting. <laughs> um, I was like, wow, really? We're just going to do that, I guess, huh? Um, I mean, I yeah. I like Namor as a character a lot. Um, He's okay. for, for a couple reasons. Namor is, back when Marvel first started, back in the 1930s, under the, 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 the pseudonym or the name Timely Comics, Namor and the Human Torch were their first two heroes that they had battling every month. That's it was correct. It was the Submariner versus an android Human Torch. Um, and so he was their first superhuman. They let a retcon him to be a mutant, uh, except that he leads his own uh, 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 empire, Atlantis. He's a white dude. Um, they obviously changed that for this film, which I was totally okay with. I loved the the changes they made to the character. I loved that they kept the key aspects of the, the... I mean, there's some very key aspects of the character that have to be kept central if you're going to make this, this character, in my opinion. And number one, I mentioned this earlier, in Marvel, in Avengers... It is an absolute ego fest. It is a bunch of people who think that they are the strongest, they are the smartest, they are the best. And no one epitomizes this more than Namor. Namor goes to blows with anyone in the comics for, like, disagreeing with him. Like, he constantly cannot accept not being, like, his opinion not being acknowledged. He is the most arrogant person and there was a couple of times when characters would try and reach compromise with him <laughs> that his responses in this film were exactly what I pictured Namor to be. Um, in which there's a point where, uh, uh, I forgot exactly what it was that the queen said that antagonized him. But she said something and he turns around and goes, uh, if I find a single ship in this water, so I'm going to come back and kill you or something like that. And it's just like, holy shit, that was so much more 
aggressive than like the polite barbing that she hits you with for you to turn around and be like, I'm going to murder your friends. I'm going to murder your family. And I'm going to do it tomorrow. If I fucking hear from you again, like, holy shit, Neymar, that is a straight up call to war, uh, on a queen of a sovereign nation. Like <laughs> how bold of you to, to assume that. But I, I think that Namor in the comics, it, it's, struggles for me a little bit when he's talking that way to like thor iron man these people that have these super strong feats for him to be like no i'm fucking better than all of you in this film it makes a little bit more sense when he's been praised as a god for 700 years the dude's just there like yeah i I get it if that's if that's been your only existence is that every single person you've ever met and lived with and, and died alongside um or been there through their death has just worshipped you as this immortal god like yeah you're gonna have this extremely inflated sense of of ego that's just never gonna go away and yeah. i i loved that as an explanation for how that character acts so like namor in this film not only was he shown as powerful which i want to talk about but um holy shit did they nail his the spirit of his character yeah I think that the characterization was very spot on. And I honestly wish that we had had more time with him interacting with different characters and kind of showing that arrogance, because I think we only really get it maybe twice. Um, Like that scene where he's in the cave talking to Shuri and he's basically like, he's like being really nice to her. And then he's just like, yeah, if you're not with me, you're against me and I will destroy you. And it's just like, whoa, fuck, that was a quick flip. And then, yeah, that moment where he, he meets with Angela uh, Bassett on the, on the beach and like yeah does threaten her life like immediate like very quickly and like he knows that he can back it up too um i also did like his portrayal um uh, i liked that his flight is different than anybody else's flight in the in the mcu right now where he can like it's almost like he's jumping and running and he can like turn on a dime in the air because of the wings on his feet i thought that that was like it was a very cool way of doing it. So his movement is different, which I, I appreciated. Um, I, uh, I really liked when Umbaku tried to hit him with his weird ball stick thing. And he just like kind of reached up and let it broke and turned and punched through him. I did think it was funny that Umbaku was like, he's as strong as the Hulk. It's like, if he was as strong as the Hulk, you would be mist right now. You'd just be a blood mist floating in the air of Wakanda. Like, are you kidding me? Like, he didn't break your rib cage, and you think he's strong as strong as well, the Hulk? He broke. Is that vibranium armor that it, he was wearing? It looked like wood to me. I don't. I don't think Namor. I, it would be crazy to me if they were like, oh, yeah, Namor can break vibranium. <laughs> I, I thought that's what they were trying to establish, which I was like, that's a bold fucking move right there. Um, I don't know, because he st- if he could break through vibranium, how did his spear not pierce through the bulletproof glass? Absolutely everything, yeah. Yeah, uh, so I don't know. Um, I... Uh, I did think it was cool. I liked the knockdown drag out fight between him and Shuri on the beach. Um, I thought that that was cool. I had a really big problem with the editing in this movie and I don't necessarily know how to articulate it, but it just felt strange to me. Like there were scenes that I was just sort of like, why did that happen that way? Or like, why are you cutting away from this? Like show me, show it to me. You know, did you not get a very good take and like, you're just kind of having to edit around it. I'm not, wasn't really sure what I was what it was but there was just something off about it to me um i'll say the climax of this film because i did want to touch on 
the the fight scenes with Namor. You're absolutely right. I loved the depiction of Namor fighting. His his verticality, his mobility was just super fun to see on screen. Um, <laughs> I loved uh, just watching him fight people. I liked the climax of the film. Like my initial reaction walking out of the theater was I really did enjoy the way that they broke up the climax between three different one on one fight scenes and showed you the the progression between them where they'd show you just 30 seconds of each fight. So we switch over the next person, so 30 seconds, the next one. That being said, in retrospect, the fight that I enjoyed the most was definitely Namor versus um, uh, uh, Shuri. And I almost wish that that had been its own. Because uh, there was, because yeah. in that film, talking about it with a friend after the film, the, the thing that resonated with me most watching that specific fight scene was the power that they had between each blow. Like each blow was not delivered like the swift claws of the Black Panther. They were swinging like fucking sledgehammers, and each one delivered like it was a fucking blow. And yeah, I was like, they were really hitting to cause damage. It wasn't like finesse. It was like watching two heavyweight boxers fucking just go pound for pound against each other. You know, it felt like yeah. a Rocky movie almost. Um, yeah, I, I I wish that we had gotten just like a moment of or like a pretty like long scene of just them fighting rather than like the quick cutting like i didn't like being taken away from that fight scene because i felt like emotionally that was what the movie had led up to and then taking me away from it kind of pulled the tension out of that scene for me or something um let's talk about the the wakandans plan to take out the atlanteans you you know that like or sorry the talokanians um you know that there are thousands of mermen that exist in this world and they are destructive as fuck. And then you just take a giant weird cylindrical ship. What was that boat? What a weird place. I just, their plan made no sense to me. I was like, you're going to their homeland. Like you're deep in the ocean. If they somehow do sink your ship, you're fucked. Like, what is your... What, is, what do you think your outcome sure. is? And their outcome is you cut the head off the snake and the, you know, the rest of the snake dies or whatever. But like the head of that snake is Namor. Like, what are you talking about? Like, that's, so, that's not going to be easy. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Absolutely right. Like, I, I want to believe that there's more to the plan. Like, I remember walking, so I watched it with my, with our parents and uh, dad walked out and goes, what the fuck was in the center of that ship? Like that ship was a massive ship. What else was in there? You had one trick and it was this this sound cannon that they took fifteen seconds to disable. Like And you're and the, all sitting on top of the ship and like this platform that doesn't have railings. So like if you get knocked off, you're just in their environment now. So you're right. definitely dead. It's interesting. It was it was a bold choice for them to to approach that idea. And, and more so this, I think the Wakandans are, are really just used as a plot device in this film, unfortunately, because there's the, like, they have the most ingenuity, they have the smartest people in the world, they have all these different things, and yet Namor shows up, shows you that you have a breach in your security by swimming under your force field, and then you've got like a week before he comes back and attacks. You guys know that you are inciting war by killing Talakanians. And stealing back the princess and, and Ruby Williams, you know that you're inciting war. And yet 
Namor shows up and swims under your force field again. Like you guys have made zero effort to prevent, to like extend that barrier under the ocean. You have made zero effort to evacuate your citizen populace away from the shores. You have made zero effort to have any kind of surveillance in the water itself. Like, oh, wait, who the what, fuck are you? What river goes through Wakanda? Because Wakanda is like a landlocked nation in the middle of Africa. And yet somehow a humpback whale and a killer whale <laughs> swim from the ocean through their apparently saltwater river. Like, what was... I was like, what is this? This is a freshwater orca? What is going on here? <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. What, what a strange concept. Um, yeah, I don't... I just... I, I was sort of like... I was just confused by a lot of that. And I think the idea is that it was, like, driven by rage or whatever. But, like, at the end... Like so many Wakandans are dead, you know what I mean? And like, so, sure. like, I mean, her plan was Namor like, calling off his people. Like, honestly, makes no sense. He yeah. he could like Namor. I feel like in the comics, as soon as they got back to the ship and he saw that his people were about to win, would have like flown through the ship that he was in, killing Shuri and kicking her into the water, and then fucking joined his men and slaughtered all of the rest of the Wakandans and then just been like, all right, now we're Wakanda, bitch. Exactly. You know what I mean? Like, that's... Fly back to Wakanda. We've taken out your entire military. We now own this fucking place. Now we're going against the surface world tomorrow. Yeah, now we have Wakandan tech. Yeah, exactly. I just... I don't know, man. Um, I did like the scene between Denai Guerrero's Okoye on the bridge in Cambridge. Um... I thought that that was really cool watching like it was very well choreographed. It's probably the best choreographed fight scene in the movie. Um, Atuma is a good character from the comics or it's Akuma or Atuma. I can't remember, but um, if I remember right, he's like Namor's like main arch rival of like, the, like he kind of fits you've like seen, Orm Ocean Master. Exactly. Say, if you've seen Aquaman, he's the Orm Ocean Master to, to uh, Namor's Aquaman. Yep, Namora, I believe, is like his sister or his cousin or something like that, and she sort of serves as a pseudo antagonist who uh, sometimes fights against him, sometimes works with him. Um, uh, but she didn't really get any development, which I thought I was like, why? We don't want to develop any any of these characters at all. We just want them to be brawlers, I guess. Um, I, I. Uh, had another thought but i'm not it's gone i don't know what's going on so the the fight on the bridge i had the thought of the dude hitting the spear the vibranium spear and making it rattle pushing her back before it happened i was like oh, i hope they do that and then they did it and i was like hey uh, that was a very fun sequence for him to hit it and the spear to rattle vibrate so hard that it pushes okoye back like 10 feet um uh, was a really fun sequence i did really enjoy that fight on the bridge um I, I, yeah, I thought this movie was was really well done. I did get like Lord of the Rings three vibes from sitting in the theaters watching Lord of the Rings three at the end of this film, where it had like multiple endings. Um, that yeah, let's talk about that and wrap this up. Um, what do you think happened at the end of this movie? <laughs> well, I mean, so you established that uh, Tyler Khan's still around. Um, obviously Namor is going to appear in other properties. Um, if not his own solo, they film. would never introduce Namor and then kill him off in a movie. That would be ridiculous. Right. 
and uh yeah so so there's that aspect um the other main thing that they established is uh in the five-year gap uh after the um snap apparently it's revealed that king t'challa the black panther had impregnated his girlfriend nakia uh who then gave birth to a son and raised him out in haiti Haiti, away from the borders of wakanda so that was an interesting choice to have that character introduced not sure what they want to do with that character in the long run why that was a significant choice for this film um i don't picture them doing anything with that character i can't imagine them uh bringing in another king t'challa another i don't know just wild choice on that one in my opinion yeah I don't really know, aside from maybe they're doing a sort of, like, they they do seem to be setting up, like, a young Avengers group. Like, at the end of She-Hulk, they introduced Scar. I don't know if you watched She-Hulk, but... I, I saw the announcement, or I saw the, the clip of them introducing, which, again, is another one that's like, what, why? Yeah, and, and it was, like, really weird in the show. It was so weird. He just shows up to a family barbecue, and he goes, by the way, I just got back from uh, Sakaar, and I apparently had a son, and there's a scar and then they just cut and it's just like what it seems like a pretty big deal <laughs> right but i guess we're just doing that now huh um i don't know man i feel like marvel is starting to lose its way or maybe i'm just like kind of burnt out on like this massive storyline it's just not you know it's not working out as well as i would have liked but um there is something that you you didn't mention and that's that shiri apparently has abandoned her her post as queen and is going to maintain the title of Black Panther, but is going to let M'Baku rule as king. Did you catch that? Mm-mm. They they go to the waterfall, and she and they say and like introducing like the queen Shuri, and then M'Baku gets off the ship and says Shuri has decided not to come today, but I will challenge for the crown. And because she's not there to challenge, apparently in my head. That means that he will become king. Um, and I mean, we do know from like Civil War that Chadwick Boseman or T'Challa was Black Panther before he was king because his father was too old to be the Black Panther, right? Um, so you can be the king. You can be the Black Panther without being the king. So maybe Umbaku will just be the ruler of Wakanda without being the Black Panther, um, which that's fine with me. Um, I don't know. I mean, did you have any other thoughts about this movie before we wrap up? No. Cool. Yeah. I mean, like I said, if you're, if you're listening this far in and you haven't seen it, (laughs) I don't know what you're doing, but, um, I don't regret seeing it by any means. I would just say that this is like a very middle of the pack Marvel movie for me. Um, it just didn't really hit on all the levels I would have liked, but I am interested to see what they do with Namor going forward because I think that Tena Cuerta was good and I liked all the changes and like the way that they represented that character. Um, cool. Well, I think we're going to skip the What's Clever section this week. Um, and Brian's take- not here to pick a movie. Yep. So I didn't pick one. Do you have a second musical that you want to... I'll, I'll pick it off... off. Pod, I don't have one off the top of my head. I don't want to rush this. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go ahead and throw one out. I'm gonna say La La Land. I think Brian would have chosen it because it's like the newest one. 
Um, I don't Ryan know would have chosen it. cats, but yeah. Yeah. Oh, do you want to watch cats? You watch cats. <laughs> I mean, we can watch cats. We can find it. Um, I always wanted to. It seems crazy. Let's do it. Let's watch cats. <laughs> All right. Join us next week. We're watching cats. Bye, um, everyone. Yep. Bye, guys. Thank you for listening to the Clever Kids podcast. If you want more from us, be sure to follow us on social media. We're at Clever Kids Pod everywhere. Or you can get in touch with us at cleverkidspodcast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. And be sure to rate us on whatever app you're listening on and recommend us to a friend. We really appreciate it. Or don't. Whatever's clever.